Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. It is the mother of all talk shows, the open university of the airwaves, the college of knowledge, where there are no tuition fees and where you are encouraged to speak back to the teacher, either on the poll or on the messaging systems that we have. Many people have already begun ringing in because the subjects we're dealing with tonight could scarcely be of greater moment. As I said, a state of virtual war exists between Russia and the United Kingdom. Never in second place, the United Kingdom's hatred of everything Russian, everything in Moscow, everything in the Kremlin is now vividly on display. The British bombed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. The British launched an attack on the Black Sea fleet of the Russian Federation yesterday. The British were involved in the attack on the civilian infrastructure of the Kerch Bridge leading between the mainland of Russia and the Crimea. How do we know all this? Because Russia had illegally hacked the private telephone of the briefly British Prime Minister Liz Trust. Liz Trust we can say did not have time for the spycraft class at the Foreign Office. We know that the British did it because she texted Antony Blinken, the US Secretaries of State, one minute after the explosion of the Nord Stream pipelines with the heavily coded words, it's done. She is more Austin Powers than James Bond, I'll give you that, but then she wasn't long in the job. This was one minute after the explosion and before anybody else in the world even knew that the explosion had taken place. The fact that the Russians could so easily hack the phone of the British Prime Minister is a remarkable thing especially as they were using the Israeli-invented spyware Pegasus software, which is represented in court, if you want to take a legal action against them, by none other than Cherie Blair, KC, the wife of the former British Prime Minister, Tony Blair. Curiouser and curiouser. Israeli spyware enabled the Kremlin to listen in and read the messages of the British Prime Minister. And the British Prime Minister was so stupid, she gave away British culpability of a top secret terrorist operation directly to the phone of the US Secretary of State and without the use of codes. She could have said, it's raining in London, or is it raining in Washington? 
or have you hand your washing out to dry? But no, she texted the words, it's done. Well, it's done now, Liz. The Russians know that you did it. That you did it, moreover, not just against Russia, but against your own NATO allies in Germany in particular, uh, but also in Sweden and Denmark. Friendly allied countries had their infrastructure destroyed or their territorial sovereignty assailed by you, by your special boat service commanded from the Admiralty building in Whitehall in London. You placed the machinery that was able to be located by the American airplane that flew all the way from the USA and bombed the locators that your special boat service had placed there. It was an Anglo-American operation of some bravery and some skill. And there will be people in Whitehall buzzing that I'm calling them out right now for doing this. But I believe that just as a small cloud can be a harbinger of great storms to come. This action against the Nord Stream by the Anglo-American Axis is that small cloud, and it is a harbinger of great cloud, great storms to come. And those storms will look like this. Increasingly, on the European mainland, the country, the people, and even now the governments of mainland Europe are tiring of the UK-US suicide mission that they have been forced to undertake. They will not forgive an attack costing billions and costing even more importantly, potentially the lives of tens of thousands of people who will freeze to death in Europe in the coming months. They will not forget the way that the Euro and the European economy has been sacrificed for the dollar and for the economy of the United States of America. They will not forget that American nuclear weapons, new nuclear weapons, have now been ceded on American bases throughout their territory, making them an instantaneous target in an intermediate-range nuclear exchange of weapons which may very well happen as a result of the Ukraine war. They will not forgive the interference in their political, economic and sovereign internal affairs that Britain and the United States in particular have been responsible for. And so the great storm to which I refer is one in which Britain and the United States become increasingly isolated in public opinion first and isolated formally, politically and economically. Macron and Schultz are busily preparing a legal challenge against the United States' unfair economic practices, its false notions of capitalist competition. And that court action is about to begin. And that too is a sign of things to come. Europe, which was inching towards a Eurasian engagement in its future, has now become profoundly alienated from Britain and the United States. And that is not 
in the interests of the people of Britain or the people of the United States. It's going to happen slowly, but surely, and I have no doubt how it will end. It will end with a rapprochement between Russia and Germany and France, and by definition, the smaller fish that sail along in the wake of the, uh, the Franco-German political and economic alliance. The isolation of Britain and the United States will leave a few friends in the world. The five eyes, yes, but those eyes are dimming. And as the Russian hack of Liz Truss's telephone makes clear, they're not the only people with eyes and with ears in at the top table of the powers. Now, poor Paul Pelosi got hammered the other night in San Francisco. I don't mean that he got blindly drunk, although he's fond of doing so. Only recently he was in court for driving with four times the allowable amount of alcohol in his blood. Nancy was in Washington, D.C., committing other crimes. But Paul Pelosi may very well have been back on the sauce the other night, but none of that would justify someone assaulting him with a hammer. What would be an entirely private affair, where Paul Pelosi was before he got hammered, and who he was with in the house when he got hammered, and how and why he got hammered, and whether the hammer was his first or his assailant's hammer, is of course purely between the San Francisco police and poor Paul Pelosi, except in this regard. The attempt has been made just in advance of the midterm election to make this a political electoral issue, to imply that the assailant, who may or may not also, as I say, have been in his underpants, oddly, as he lives in Berkeley, California, it's a long way to San Francisco, and don't forget Mark Twain's famous remark that the uh, coldest winter he ever experienced was summer in San Francisco, so it's chilly there in your underpants. How the man got into the house is, of course, a matter now for the police. But to blame it on the Republican Party, to blame it on Donald Trump, to blame it on MAGA Americans, that a gay nudist swinger ended up battering Paul Pelosi over the head is a bit of a stretch, if you will forgive the pun. Now, I look forward to more information, don't you? If I haven't caught your imagination by now, I'm unlikely ever to. But Elon Musk, the new owner of Twitter, and I hope better than the oligarchs that went before, was quick to link the article which claimed that Pelosi had been prior to the incident in a gay bar until two o'clock in the morning in San Francisco. Heaven knows there are plenty there to choose from. Now, as I say, I've no idea if that story is true, but Elon Musk is not a lightweight man to have circulated it. If it is true, then I regard it as an entirely private affair. And I presume that 
Nancy Pelosi is well aware of the predilections of Paul Pelosi. After all, she's been married to him since 1963. But whatever happened in San Francisco the other night, it is almost certain that it has nothing to do with Donald Trump, that it has nothing to do with the Republican Party, that it has nothing to do with the midterm elections, which are only now days away and which presage the beginning of the end of the lame duck presidency of Joseph Biden. Speaking of Elon Musk, on day one of Musk's ownership of Twitter, the entirely arbitrary cap on my followers at 440,000 would appear to have been lifted virtually at the instant that Musk entered the building because thousands of people were quickly added to my list of followers. I was assailed by people telling me they were now seeing my tweets for the first time in many months, eight months to be precise. 80% of my output on Twitter was deliberately suppressed by the oligarchs who owned Twitter prior to Elon Musk's takeover. He says he's going to have a content moderation panel, a council, he called it. I immediately applied for the job. After all, I'm a parliamentarian of some note, almost 30 years, six parliamentary terms. I'm an avid user of Twitter. I have hundreds of thousands of followers with tens, scores, maybe hundreds of millions of impressions on my tweets over a very long period, some 12, 13, maybe more years on Twitter. I think I'm ideal for the job, Elon. I'm a person of the left, of conservative cult uh, cultural views. I'm a person who believes in freedom of speech. And I'm a person who believes that you need to reinstate Donald Trump because the injustice that he suffered in being struck from social media platforms whilst the most powerful elected politician in the world scarcely needs to be overstated. And when you add Twitter's own role in suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop story, which is going to become the biggest story of 2023, write that down, remember you heard it here, it's going to be a story that will involve shady business dealings, not just by Hunter Biden, the crack cocaine addict, the sex addict, the man with a taste for very young girls addict, but the role of Joe Biden in Hunter Biden's life will be revealed if power changes hand next Thursday, a week on Thursday in the midterm elections. And lastly, in 1966, England hosted the World Cup and a very good job they made of it too. I recall it vividly and happily, leading, thanks to a Russian linesman, to an England victory, the only England victory ever in the history of the World Cup. I'll never forget the sunshine gleaming 
on Jules Rimet in the hand of the English golden boy Bobby Moore. But at the time that England was hosting the World Cup, British soldiers, English and Scottish, were literally murdering Yemenis on the streets of Aden. Nobody said then that England was not a fit and proper place to host a World Cup. Gay people in England were committing criminal offences at the time if they engaged in their love for each other. England had had, until then, 200 years of imperial conquest, including the preeminent role in the organization of international slavery at the time we hosted the World Cup. Not that long before, not even a century before, we had bombarded China to punish them for refusing permission for us to ship Indian heroin onto the streets of China. We bombarded them until they concluded an unequal treaty with us and gave us some of their territory and the usual concessions. Why do I mention all of this? Because I'm just wondering what Qatar did to deserve the wholesale talk of boycotting and rubbishing that they are currently suffering because they're hosting the World Cup. If you're a drinker who cannot go to a football match without alcohol in your hands, give this one a miss, boys, and watch the World Cup on television with all the cans of special brew you can sink. Because in Qatar, you're not allowed to drink alcohol in public. You can drink it in your hotel, many do. But you cannot take it to the game, you cannot swagger through the streets, getting drunk and throwing chairs at the supporters of other countries, because that's just not within the customs, never mind the laws of the Arabs of the Persian Gulf and Qatar in particular. If you are going to the World Cup with your gay lover, why not be discreet in deference to the cultural mores of the people whose country you're visiting? who are your hosts. Nobody's saying you can't have private sexual relations with each other. Just don't ram it down the throats of the people of Qatar because they don't hold with that in Qatar. Respect the local people. Respect the local customs. Or don't go. Hold hands in front of a big screen on somewhere in your own country. You see where I'm getting here? I'm getting at the liberal hypocrites. The World Cup's been held in America, which has invaded and occupied 50 countries since the end of the Second World War. The World Cup has been held in all kinds of countries whose crimes are far, far greater than any crime ever committed by the people or the government of Qatar. Now I have nothing to do with Qatar. They haven't sent me a single ticket for their World Cup tournament. 
I have zero relations with Qatar. But I never stay silent when somebody is being bullied in the way that Qatar is currently being bullied. I thought that Donald Trump uh, put it well, but that Vladimir Putin put it better in his three-hour statement in Valdai this week. Can you imagine Joe Biden speaking live for three hours? He said this, the West are entitled to their beliefs that there are dozens of genders. They are entitled to their gay parades, but they shouldn't try to force them onto other people. What about that statement did Putin get wrong? A record live audience right at this minute, and the poll is going great guns too. Should Donald Trump be allowed back on Twitter? On Twitter, it is yes, 91%, no, 9%. On YouTube, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, by the way. Uh, yes, we don't have the figures for YouTube or Telegram. In fact, my good wife is telling me these are the overall numbers. Yes, 91%, no, 9%. So, Elon Musk, if you are watching, please take note. We're taking calls from all over the world these days, and our podcast is now being downloaded in 122 countries and territories around the world. Now, if the first act of Elon Musk was to lift the cap on my follower numbers, he hasn't yet removed the unjust and untrue label that he's put under my name or his company has. The second act was far more important. It was to reinstate the one and only Scott Ritter back onto the platform. And I'm very happy to say that Scott Ritter joins us now. Former US Marine officer, former esteemed weapons inspector, and the biggest viewed guest on the mother of all talk shows. By a distance, Scott Ritter, Welcome back. Can we start with that minor point? Did it come as a surprise to you that your Twitter account was reinstated? My Twitter account wasn't reinstated. I, I reinstated myself. Um, the, the original Twitter account continues to be banned. I took advantage of um, Elon Musk's bold statement that the bird is free. And so to test that theory, I reinstated myself onto uh, Twitter by uh, creating an illegal account. It's in my name. I'm not hiding who I am. Um, and then I tested uh, Elon Musk by um, making the following statement. Uh, Bucha was a war crime. Ukraine did it. And within 12 hours, Twitter banned me. So I wasn't reinstated. I reinstated myself. I repeated the same type of tweet that got me banned in the first place and proving that uh, the, there is truth and wisdom to the old Who song, Won't Get Fooled Again, Meet the New Boss, same as the old boss. I'm banned, I'm on appeal, and I'm waiting to find out what Elon Musk is going to do about it.
Well, that is breaking news, I must say. Some of the man buns have not yet been fired, and this might be their uh, rear guard action. Uh, Scott, I certainly hope so, and I apologize uh, for assuming the best uh, of Elon Musk in, in this particular case. But uh, it, leaving aside the minor issue of uh, social media platforms, we learned today uh, that uh, the British did it. It was British special forces that uh, paved the way, at least, lit the path, at least, for the US destruction of property worth billions belonging to one of their allies, Germany, and their current adversary, Russia, in the Nord Stream pipelines. And we learned today that the reason we know that is that the Russians were reading the text messages sent on an ordinary iPhone by the British Prime Minister to the US Secretary of State. All of that's quite, uh, uh, quite startling to me, uh, Scott. How is it to you? It's extraordinarily startling. It's uh, stunning. Um, I mean, of course, if uh, Ian Fleming was alive, uh, we'd be reading about it as, you know, bold and daring, uh, you know, he who dares kind of stuff. But um, it's grossly irresponsible because the pipeline, you know, isn't a uh, Nazi pipeline. Um, the pipeline is a multinational pipeline uh, that services Germany and Europe. So, um I guess the British decided that uh, he who dares uh, should dare to attack their own allies, because that's what this was, a, a bold, and I'm being as sarcastic as I, as I can be, attack against Germany, against fellow Europeans, against the European economy, against Europe's lifeline. Um, now Europe will suffer. Uh, and there's been an effort to blame the Russians, but the only people apparently they have to blame is the British and their American masters, by the way, because I don't believe for a second that uh, the British would have done this without uh, a green light from Washington, D.C. It's done, she texted to Blinken. That's deep cover, that, isn't it? Uh, extraordinarily deep cover. And um, again, um, I think it shows the complicity of the United States. It's done, meaning that um, what's done. It has to stand for something. In this case, it was the destruction of the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines. Uh, and this also points to um, earlier collaboration between these two countries to take out a piece of German slash European energy infrastructure. It's done. Well, the only thing it's done is, you know, her career and um, uh, anybody else's career who continues to follow down this path. This is suicidal. It's suicidal for Europe and their e economy. Um, but, you know, this is dangerous because there's news came out today that uh, apparently the Russians have found evidence to show that uh, the British were behind uh, the Ukrainian abuse of the humanitarian uh you know, outlet that had been created for the shipment of food, using that as a cover to carry out a drone attack against the Russian fleet in Sevastopol. Um, and what, how has Russia responded? They've shut down the humanitarian channel. They've closed it, saying that it's being abused by the Ukrainians and by their British masters. So 
it appears that England's doing everything but declaring war against Russia. And at some point in time, Britain has to understand that there will be a price to be paid by the British people. You know, right now they're getting away with it because apparently Britain falls into the same heroic category as the United States, willing to fight to the last Ukrainian. But if England wants to go ahead and put its thumbprint on everything, then England's going to pay a price. I don't know what that price is. I mean, I think the first price is you're going to get very hungry this winter because all of the food that was leaving Odessa was apparently headed to uh, British, you know, markets. Um, but this is this is terrible. I mean, what, what does England think? This is going to be a free ride. You can attack a great nation like Russia and just get away with it. Hide behind Article five forever. Hide behind, you know, uh, America's skirts forever. You've been out in England. You're a warmongering, pathetic little excuse of a nation, and you're going to pay a price. Well, it's only exactly 100 years ago that British forces were fighting in Russia to bring about a regime change there. I'm writing something at the moment uh, about that. So watch this uh, space. On the war more broadly, Scott, uh, what's your take on the current battlefield situation now? And when does General Winter arrive on the battlefield? And what will be the impact of that? Well, my take is to just take the words of um, General Surovokin, General Armageddon, the new Russian commander. The situation is tense. And what I mean by that is war is hell. There's a lot of fighting going on. And men are dying on both sides, but primarily on the Ukrainian side. Uh, they're being thrown into battle unprepared, uh, without little preparation in terms of tactics. And they're being slaughtered by the Russians who have solidified their defenses and are fighting for the first time uh, in accordance with their doctrine. Um, the Russians are building up their strength while the Ukrainians are depleting their strength. And neither NATO nor the United States or Great Britain are able to provide uh, resources uh, in the quantities necessary to replace that which is being lost. So even if they're willing to fight to the last Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainians are going to run out of equipment at a faster rate than NATO can replenish it. Uh, General Winter is on his way. Um, let's, let's just be very blunt about this. In Russia, lights will be on. Gas will be provided to homes. People will not freeze to death. In Ukraine right now, the uh, electric grid is being shut down by the Russians. Um, the Ukrainian people are going to be freezing, they're going to be hungry, and they're going to be literally operating in the dark. Um, that's never a good thing for troops at the front line. There's gonna be a lot of Ukrainians worrying about what's going on back home, especially those who've just been recently conscripted forcefully off the streets. Uh, their will to fight will be minimal. Not only that, many of the people who are conscripted do not have access to cold weather gear. So as it gets colder, they're getting colder. Unlike each Russian uh, soldier who has been recently mobilized, who has been handed a full, full complement of cold weather gear. Uh, the Russians have the ability to rotate, rotate troops out of the front lines, into the rear areas to get warm, to get well-fed, to get rested before they rotate back in. Ukraine doesn't have that luxury. Their troops are going to the front line where they will stay until they either are dead, wounded, captured, or they retreat uh, under pressure from uh, the Russian soldiers. Uh, General Winter will be used to the full advantage of the Russians. In some areas, the Russians 
will probably uh, call for a lull. They're digging in. They're creating defensive lines. In other areas, the Russians will continue the attack because the Russians are trained to carry out offensive operations in the winter. And eventually, um, you know, General Winter will depart the area and we will find Ukraine far weaker at the end of winter than they were going into the winter. We'll find the nation nearly evaporated in terms of a cohesive uh, country that is capable of feeding itself, uh, heating itself. Uh, it will be totally at the mercy of a Europe that itself is going to be going through difficult times. Ukraine is about to become the abandoned nation of the world. And when that happens, there'll be the lowest possible fruit to be plucked by the Russian military, which hasn't forgotten why they're there to begin with. Will the fighting continue a high pitch, uh, notwithstanding the winter weather? To what extent does heavy snow and very, very cold conditions alter the uh, pace and character of events on the battlefield? Right now, the Ukrainians are involved in um, uh, very intensive offensive operations. They will not be able to sustain this into the winter. They will be compelled to fall back into prepared defensive positions. What does the snow do? Right now, the Ukrainians in prepared defensive positions have the luxury of having foliage over their head that shields them from drones and uh, reconnaissance photographs. Um, when the fall, the leaves fall. And when that happens, they no longer have that cover. And while you might be safe in a bunker, meaning you could avoid detection, eventually you'll have to depart that bunker to get resupplied, to take care of um, Mother Nature, uh, whatever. And when you do that, your footprints will be shown leaving the bunker and coming back into the bunker. And a Russian drone is going to see that, and they're going to drop a bomb on you. They're going to hit you with artillery shells. As your vehicles move in, the tracks point a little arrow straight to where the vehicles are, and they will be destroyed. Russia has an overwhelming superiority, both in the ability to detect uh, targets on the Ukrainians, but then put steel on those targets. This winter is going to be all about dead Ukrainians. The Russians are going to be stacking them like firewood. Uh, this is going to be a very, very difficult winter for the Ukrainians. Uh, the majority of the soldiers who are going to be on the front lines are going to be killed or wounded. There won't be too many of them left when this done. Now, the last time you were here, Scott, you introduced us all to the uh, exotic practice of sheep dipping, <laughs> uh, into which I've been looking uh, more closely. I've been looking at the names of many of the dead, the passports, uh, pictures of many of the dead on the Ukrainian side. There's a very remarkable number of Polish names and Polish passports there. How many do you think uh, foreign soldiers, either uh, mercenaries or maybe even special forces from foreign countries, are fighting on the Ukrainian side? Well, it's a significant number. I, I would be loath to try and put a precise number on it because, frankly speaking, I don't know. I do know that the Russians have claimed to kill tens of thousands of them, primarily Poles, a lot of Romanians, um, and also a smattering of people from, from Western countries. I do know that Russian intelligence has been speaking of tens of thousands of Poles, Polish soldiers uh, who have been brought over and transformed into Ukrainian soldiers since uh, this summer. And that practice is continuing. 
Um, you know, the, the Ukrainian army, uh, there was an interview done with a Ukrainian special forces colonel. Uh, and he's, you know, his unit was NATO capable, uh, trained alongside NATO prior to this conflict, was considered to be interoperable with his NATO counterparts. And he said, I've lost 80% of my men, 80%. And everybody they replaced them with have no training. These guys don't know what to do. So you call me special forces. There's nothing special about what my guys do right now. We, 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 we can't do anything special. That's the entire Ukrainian army. Uh, they, they're, they're recruiting people, mobilizing people, bringing them to the front lines, but they're not well-trained. They're not elite by any sense of the word, um, and they lack motivation. This is the importance of the mercenaries, because these mercenaries are either um, sheep-dipped Polish troops, sheep-dipped Romanian troops, or they are not the uh, airsoft, um, you know, fake wannabes that came over early on, you know, former guys who served as an admin clerk during the Afghan war who suddenly wanted to become a combat veteran and came to, uh, came to Ukraine only to die. Uh, the guys that are coming now are recruited as, you know, uh, by uh, these, these private military contractors who are looking for what they call executive protection experience. That's code word for the kind of uh, bodyguard service that special forces provide. And, um, these guys are leading the assault, and there's lots of them. We see video after video of people speaking uh, English uh, with various accents. Um, but the other thing about them is, um, like the Ukrainians, they're dying in large numbers. They're not going to turn the tide of battle. I do think we're going to see more and more Polish troops come in as Poland prepares for what I be, believe to be a foolish gambit, and that is to... Um, seize Western Ukraine. Uh, it won't involve the Polish army pouring across the border because the Polish army is already in Ukraine. Entire battalions are coming over, sheep dip, and then joining the Ukrainian service. And those battalions can, you know, be cleansed of whatever it is that transformed them from a wolf to a sheep and go back to being a wolf right there on Western Ukraine. Um, and this is an escalation that I'm, uh, that I'm very concerned about as Ukraine uh, is more and more comprehensively defeated uh, on the Eastern Front, on the Southern Front, that Poland is going to say, now's the time, we need to act now. Scott Ritter, I do hope your appeal succeeds on the Twitter, but whether it does or whether it doesn't, you're always more than welcome on the mother of all talk shows. Thanks very much. Well, should Donald Trump be allowed back on Twitter? Yes, 91%, no 9%. You can vote right up until the end of the show. Let's hit the phone lines. Uh, first up is Martin in Scotland on Liz Truss. Who's she? Go ahead, Martin. Uh, good evening, George. Um, good, to, good to speak to you again. Evening. Uh, George, uh, Liz Truss and Ben Wallace have uh, exposed the British people to involvement in a, a needless war, a war which no... Uh, seeing individual Sikhs, I would say. The terrorist acts on the Nord Stream and the Kerst Bridge, which were carried out on the instruction of, the, of these two imbeciles, should surely lead to their arrest, uh, their trial and their imprisonment. 44 days in power, uh, and in her effort to impress, she has not only ruined the economy, but she's also brought war to, almost to her doorstep. That's my question. Well, I think that's a... Well, it's not a question, but it is a brilliant statement. 
and perfectly succinctly expressed, it's hard to believe that Liz Truss did so much damage in so little time. I'm sure Mr. Churchill would have found a way to express that. In 44 days, she saw off Her Majesty the Queen, she destroyed the British economy, and she has placed us now right at the centre, in the bullseye of the confrontation between Russia and NATO. And as Scott Ritter put it, delicately enough, there'll be a price to pay for this. The Russians hate the British state because the British state has been more than any other state responsible for crimes against the Russian people and the wider Soviet people, uh, more responsible for more crimes than anybody else. Uh, British antipathy towards Russia doesn't just go back, of course, uh, to the period I refer to about which I'm writing uh, of the British-led intervention, led by Churchill, as a matter of fact, opposed by Lloyd George, driven by Churchill, in which scores of thousands of British soldiers were sent home, uh, not home from the First World War, which they expected, but sent to the frozen wastes of Russia instead to interfere, intervene in the Russian civil war to bring about a victory for the white armies and the restoration of the monarchy there, the defeat of uh, Lenin and, and Bolshevik power. The enmity and bad blood goes back much longer than that, as Ben Wallace, of all people, should know, because he was a military officer in the Scots Guards, who were the people on the charge of the Light Brigade, in, into the guns, <laughs> on and on they rode and were slain in huge numbers in the Crimean War, the Scots Guards of the British Army. So the enmity is long and deep. But the Russians today are in a much stronger position, economically, politically, in terms of soft power, in terms of cyber power, than the Soviet Union ever was or the Tsarist Empire at the Crimean War ever was. The Russians are capable of reading the text messages of the British Prime Minister sitting in Downing Street. If they are capable of that, you can be sure that they are capable of much more. And sadly, if the shooting starts, Martin, we are right on the front line, before anyone else, before Washington, because that would mean literally World War III, but before Berlin, before Paris, before any of the other European countries, London, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, Glasgow, we will be eviscerated, obliterated, turned into ash as a result of actions taken by Liz Truss, who wouldn't know one end of Eurasia from the other, who couldn't tell which cities were in Russia and which were in Ukraine, 
who didn't know her Baltic from her Black Sea, who doesn't know her arse from her elbow, who was so stupid she became the shortest living Prime Minister in British history, has just put us right in the centre of the firing line. Thanks, Martin. Tony's in Liverpool on the same subject. Go ahead, Tony. Listen, um, this is catastrophic for the United uh, Kingdom and the United States diplomatically. I mean, Liz Truss has basically blown the gaff. Um, and as you well know, she was also the foreign secretary for a period in which uh, scenario she would be the head of MI6 as well. So you can only imagine what she's been sending on an unsecured personal mobile phone or cell phone, as, as they call them in the United States. And Russia has been monitoring and intercepting all of this uh, traffic from her phone uh, for the past year. So God only knows what she's been sending on that. Um, and as for Germany, now they know exactly who did it, if they didn't already, which they may have done, but now they've had it uh, rubbed in, rubbed, their noses have been rubbed in the, in the, in the dirt. Uh, it's quite clear that this is an attack on German infrastructure, uh, NATO ally, and I'm sure the International Criminal Court and the United Nations may well want to see the evidence, which is... Uh, you know, available if they want to peruse this evidence. Well, uh, Anglo-German enmity is, of course, uh, equally ancient uh, to the Anglo-Russian enmity of which I've just been speaking. Uh, but Germany now knows, to use your words, it was Britain that attacked it. It was uh, the British Navy which destroyed a multi-billion euro piece of German infrastructure and doomed Germany to a bitterly cold winter and a collapsing economy with German industry literally shipping out as we speak. The BASF uh, factory has been unbolted from the floor and shipped to China where it will be reassembled and BASF's highly profitable, very advanced uh, semiconductor and other electronic products will be uh, now constructed in Germany, in uh, China, rather than in Germany. German industries are already slowing down as a prelude to closing down. German citizens are applying to go and work and live in the United States. Germany has been attacked. Germany is falling. And it is falling not at the hands of the Russians, but at the hands of their supposed allies, the United States and the United Kingdom. And the greatest irony of all, Tony, must be that we only know this thanks to the Israeli spyware that Russia was employing and had installed on Liz Truss's telephone. Let's hope. She wasn't up to no good, if you know what I mean, Tony, on her mobile telephone. Gerard from London on the economy. Go ahead, Gerard. Good evening, George. Thanks for taking the call. Um, I wanted to get in contact yeah. about worldwide property prices. 
there's um, quite a lot of thought that if you were to bring down property prices to a reasonable level, both commercial and uh, residential, that people would have a lot more disposable income. So, for instance, in the UK, the the average salary is 38k, which means you net about 2,462. That's not your nurses, that's not your firemen, that's not your public services. Now, the average rent is 1,143. So it doesn't take a genius to work out that that's over what it should be, which is around 30%. I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are, that if we were able to bring down, especially commercial rents, which they're far too high because they're not in relation to what the business like a small eatery or a small shop would make, how it could improve our economy, because there would be small shops which statistically pay more rent, uh, sorry, more tax, uh, they would drive growth and also by people having less money to spend on their rent would have more money to spend elsewhere, which according to uh, the Trustmeister General would bring us growth. So if we could if we could reduce rent worldwide, because it's a problem in the Western world everywhere, people would have a lot more disposable income. I wonder what your thoughts were on that. Well, it's a very intelligent question. I'm not really the expert uh, on this subject, and I don't own a house in Britain, so uh, I'm not really aware of what the property market is currently doing. I would have thought, given the economic prospects, that uh, house prices were falling. Uh, But I understand that not only are they not falling, they're rising, which seems to me economic uh, lunacy. But that's the capitalist system that we live in. Uh, I've never understood and long made this point why uh, Britain is so infatuated with owning uh, houses rather than renting them. After all, for many, many people, not everyone, uh, your house is the place you go to sleep in and wake up in and you're out all day and all evening. Uh, It's uh, a, a trifle perverse that such a high proportion of our people's incomes are tied up in house prices. But as long as that bubble keeps inflating, then I suppose everyone's a winner, except when it reaches the point that new people cannot get on the property ladder because the supply of housing uh, is not keeping pace uh, with the number of people who want on that market. In countries like France, and in Germany, not only is there a far higher percentage of people who rent rather than buy their houses, that in places like Berlin, rents are controlled. Now, uh, controlling rents obviously produces a supply problem if the owners of the rented uh, properties decide that they don't like the level of controlled rents that we have and we're not going to invest our money anymore in property to let. Uh, But that can be solved by the state. The state can build and should build millions of new homes for rent controlled by the local authority and therefore you get the chance to elect or unelect your landlord every year, every two, three, four years, that's surely the best form of housing tenure. And it would be an economic generator of enormous proportions because the houses would all be built by our own people. The material that would be used would all be quarried and 
manufactured in our own country, in our own factories, and by our own workforce. It would be an enormous economic generator and would solve the problem of homelessness and overcrowding and poor housing at a stroke. I add only one point. I, I'm not an expert, uh, Gerard, as I said, but I, I add this point. As I look around the country, and I travel a lot, I'm in Stockport in a few days. Uh, we sold out a month ago, so you can't get tickets now, but uh, I'll be in Stockport and I'm going to Manchester for a meeting later in uh, November also. I go around, I travel around uh, the country and I see everywhere the death of the high street. Now, being old fashioned, that makes me a little bit sad, but it's probably irrevocable. But why don't we use the property that is increasingly shuttered up on our high streets for housing. We could turn these properties into good quality and by definition well situated right in the center property uh, that uh, people could live in. Uh, I've talked before about department stores. My friends in the department store industry and you know who you are tell me that getting shoppers to go to the second floor, never mind the third, fourth, fifth floor of department stores, is virtually impossible for retailers now. Why not turn the second, third, fourth and fifth floor of retail properties into flats owned by the local authority, owned by the state and let to people at affordable rents? That would solve more than one set of problems. Now look, I've got to uh, take a break, then more calls, and then it's the one and only Farhan Fronchek from the United States. Stay tuned. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Rock and roll tonight. Biggest ever live uh, viewing. Uh, as I told you last week, sun, uh, the Sunday show and the Wednesday show, uh, turned in another audience well in excess of one million. So you can see why I would like to get to the five nights a week. So then we would actually really be rivaling on a nightly basis uh, the fake stream media that has misled so many of our people, not just in this crisis, but of course in uh, many more. Let's go to Richard in Manchester. Go ahead, Rich. Good evening, George. Thank you ever so much again for having me on your show. 
George, I'm following on Twitter the the, uh, Scottish situation um, with regards to uh, splitting the union and uh, how they've gone now to the Supreme Court. Um, who are supposed to uh, give an unbiased uh, decision in one way or the other uh, as to whether you're going to do it or not. Uh, uh, Our friend Nicola has gone there uh, to say we must have it because I've got 1,000,000.2 voters and nobody can stop me and so on. She is off to Egypt and our Prime Minister isn't even going there to fly the flag £2,000 a night for Scotland uh, that you're going to Scotland are going to go ahead and uh, and, and complete the, 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 the Green Deal when they have independence. I don't know how she's going to do that but I'm flummoxed as to how much power that she's actually got or is she just going for selfies with the big boys over there or girls, whatever. I don't know, George and I, I, I'm absolutely flummoxed that Intelligent people in this country and newspapers and magazines and and television can't give them a a quick, decent answer as to what they think. Is is she going to be able to to get independence? No, uh, absolutely, absolutely not. The Scottish people are not stupid and we're quite, uh, how shall I put it, Uh, canny with money. And at the end of the day, this will be decided not on the 90-minute heartbeats of Hamden Park and the swirl of the Hamden Roar. Uh, This will be decided by the Scottish people's calculation about their own interests and the interests of their children and grandchildren. And any look at this subject through that prism uh, comes to only one conclusion, that Britain, uh, as a state, is, uh, is more than 300 years old. We are grafted together like bone. Uh, 60% of Scotland's exports go to England, not to Bulgaria or Romania or the Czech Republic uh, or any of the other corners of the fading, failing European Union empire. Uh, And all of that would be imperiled by the building of literally a wall. Uh, And uh, unlike uh, Donald Trump, I would be wary of claiming that the English will pay for it. Uh, The wall uh, will be a hard border. Couldn't be otherwise as uh, the European Union has free movement of immigrant labour and England and Wales as would be would not have that free movement and therefore a hard border would have to be constructed. Scotland would have no currency, it would have to adopt the euro uh, or in an interim phase uh, invent its own, it would have no lender of last resort, would have no central bank with resources, it would owe a phenomenal sums, eye-watering sums of money to the British state, uh, it would uh, be a non-starter. So uh, it's all flumery. It is all uh, uh, um, cosmetics. They love their quackery and greenery. So of course they're headed to the COP conference, wherever it is. The last one was in Glasgow and we 
promised all kinds of greenery and quackery there, all of which has been burned in the last 12 months. We're now digging coal like Bilio, having paid people like South Africa and Indonesia not to mine any more coal, we're now paying them to build more coal mines, dig more coal and sell it to us. We've unleashed, the British we now know, have unleashed methane five times more deadly than any other form uh, of uh, environmental pollution, carbon dioxide and the rest, in a cloud from the Nord Stream, so tall you can smell it in space. Sitting in the space station, you can smell the results of our labor, our dirty business in the, uh, in the Nord Stream terror attack. So she'll go there, she'll pose for selfies. Most people won't know who she is. Sunak is right not to go. When someone asked the question the other day, what could be more important than Rishi Sunak going to the COP conference? The only honest answer was, well, everything else is more important than heading to yet another jamboree of greenery and quackery. Now, Farhan Fronchak, the fabulous Farhan Fronchak, is my good colleague from the United States, and no show is complete without a tour of the US political horizon, especially when there are men in their underpants battering each other in San Francisco. We need to know more. Farhan might know, although she's a quiet living girl. I don't mean to <laughs> suggest uh, anything else. Uh, but Farhan, what can you tell us about the poor Paul Pelosi affair? You know, George, I swear. First of all, great to be back with you. Um, I, I'm not even joking when I say this, that two weeks ago I was in San Francisco and I passed by Nancy Pelosi's house. I had to make a, a I had to make a pit stop to make sure that I passed by her house to see how well she's doing with their $15 pints of ice cream. And there were security out all over her house. Now she wasn't home though. So I, I am having this, you know, call me a conspiracy theorist, but when I was there two weeks ago, she was not there and there were security guards at the black escalades everywhere. And now all of a sudden this whole, like you said, these two gentlemen and their underpants fighting in San Francisco, uh, you know, this happens and there's no security. This is the third person in line for the presidency. It's her husband and there's no no one watching her house or anything. Um, so the suspect, David DePape, and I knew it was going to happen right away. I kept saying, when are we going to hear that he was a crazy Trump supporter? And sure, sure enough, George, within 10 minutes, they had his Facebook page up. They were going through all of his extremist posts that he had that were anti-COVID. They were anti um, or that were you know questioning the election and basically was dubbed a right winger. And now we're finding he actually was a member of the Green Party. So here in D.C. and, and especially just in the United States in general, um, it's business as usual. Everybody pointing fingers. Everybody still hates each other. Uh, but again, a lot of people now are asking questions, at least on the right, as to, wow, this happens uh, a, a little over a week from midterms uh, when the government, when the Republicans are expected to take over the House and possibly get, win back a, a Senate majority. It's interesting, to say the least, George. 
Yeah, fascinating, uh, intoxicatingly so. And of course, uh, Paul Pelosi is a boozer uh, on an industrial uh, scale. There are reports that he had been out that night. Uh, that's his business, of course, and who he brought back with him is equally his business as long as Nancy uh, knew uh, about it. Uh, but the uh, notion that a Green Party member uh, who's a nudist uh, attacked Paul Pelosi for right-wing political reasons is a bit far-fetched, uh, to say the least. As, uh, as Elon Musk put it, there's a little bit of a possibility that there's more to this story than meets the eye. But is anyone looking into it, Farah? Uh, as of right now, the only outlet that had anything writing on this, you know, conspiracy, it was the Santa Monica Observer, uh, which is a little town outside of L.A. Uh, or not little, but, you know, compared to L.A., you know, a little suburb outside of L.A. And um Already, this outlet is being known or is being, you know, kind of talked about how it pushes uh, fake conspiracy movements, how it, it reported that Hillary Clinton was dead the week before uh, she ran for election and that they had a body double. I mean, this is the kind of things that we always see, George, and that you and I covered it during our time at RT America, where it was, you know, God forbid somebody starts asking questions, all of a sudden they're dubbed a conspiracy theorist. You know, immediately after this happens, everybody is expected to say that Paul Pelosi, this poor guy, oh my goodness, you know, thoughts and prayers what have you and mind you you know it was weeks ago that paul pelosi was picked up for a dui and cocaine possession so what better way to turn a villain into a hero out of this story um but it, it's it's people people have selective memory you know if, if this was one of trump's kids it would have been we'll see look they deserved it it's all their rhetoric but when it's paul pelosi it's this poor 82 year old man who said, excuse me, before you attack me, can I use the bathroom? I mean, it just, it, none of it makes sense. And, and a lot of people are looking at this, you know, and the, now the fact that Elon Musk tweets it out, uh, now, God forbid, if you agree with it, uh, everyone's going to look at you as a conspiracy theorist. No, we have questions about it. Yeah. And we, we have the right to ask questions, George. We know this. <laughs> uh, for sure. Uh, and of course, Pelosi's daughter uh, rejoiced when uh, Rand Paul's neighbor physically assaulted him. And mm -hmm. the reason I'm wearing a hat, uh, Farhan, is because somebody quite seriously assaulted me. And none of the liberals uh, shed a tear or even published a report about it. Mm -hmm. Nor, nor, nor would Double you expect standards, them to. isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, nor would you expect them to, because you're the one that stoked the fire. You're the one that, you know, fanned the flames and it's all your fault. But when it's anybody else, it's, oh, my goodness, look at what I mean, even CNN yesterday, they're bringing in all of these, you know, Republican congressmen to talk about the midterms and then all of a sudden shift their focus on Paul Pelosi. And, you know, one of the congressmen yesterday from Tennessee was like, yeah, it's it's a shame what happened. And automatically the, you know, the the announce or the um, anchor is grilling him. Well, don't you think it's because of your rhetoric? It's your rhetoric. And he's like. Wait, did, are, I thought we we're talking about the midterms and now I have to like stump for Paul Pelosi, who was driving drunk weeks ago and then again picked up for cocaine. 
Like what, what kind of crazy circus are we living in where now we have to defend these people just because they get attacked? You know, it wasn't also too long ago, George, that there were death threats and there were people mobilized outside of uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh's house. And it was, well, look, they overturned Roe v. Wade. So that's what you get. I mean, it's just it's preposterous when you think about how it's OK on one side. But on the other, it's it's well, you kind of brought it upon yourself, didn't you? They're not blaming the Russians yet, are they? No, we have nothing with the Russians yet. No, everything is very hyper, hyper local as far as politics right now. Uh, the only thing that is that I will say that's that's getting traction is many uh, asking as far as with the Democrats and Republicans of where Israel is going to stand in all of this, especially with Iran and Russia now and lots of pressure building up on where should Israel uh, stand by, by certain congressmen and senators. But right now, Paul Pelosi is front page center news. Uh, not the diesel that is running out fast in your country and which in a matter of days uh, will no longer be available, grounding every truck in the country. What's going to be done about that? You know what? You'd have to ask our president who was too busy voting yesterday with his granddaughter, showing how voting is just very important in this country. And mind you, yes, it is. But that's the other thing that's very interesting of the timing of this Paul Pelosi attack. And again, if this is what it is, you know, heart thoughts and prayers, as you know, they all say that we should say. But uh, the fact that there is no uh, idea of what's going to happen when diesel fuel runs out, the fact that we've just blown through our reserves um, when these were supposed to be saved for a rainy day or, you know, or saved for actual times of emergency, not just for a rainy day when you don't want to deal with Saudi Arabia and go begging on Venezuela's door again. So it's one of these things, George, where these people have no idea what's going on. They have no idea what's next on the list to, to tackle and take care of. You know, one of the things I always used to have on my show, um, Daniel McAdams, who was the chief of staff for Ron Paul. And one of it's a story that still sticks to me this day. And um, he said that the first day that Ron got in there, they went to like a House Armed Services Committee and Ron comes in with all these binders and he wants to talk about, you know, let's tackle this, 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 this. And this is the early 90s. They sit down and he starts talking and he's like, well, how about we do this? And they're just like, no, Ron, we, we just this is like we hang out here. Like, come on. And he said that he looked over at him and he looked so defeated. And it's like, yeah, that's what we do. We get elected and then we just chill. And, you know, we Netflix and chill the rest of the time. And that's that's kind of, you know, where we're at right now. We have all of these problems coming down the pipeline, no pun intended. And no, no, Paul Pelosi, though, Paul Pelosi. Well, how does Paul Pelosi help me and the, yeah, and the truck well, drivers? Uh, there must be uh, a limit uh, to all of that. And maybe that limit will come uh, a week on Thursday. What's your current thinking of how the midterm elections are going to go? You know, all last week I covered the debates between, for example, Mehmet Oz and John Fetterman of Pennsylvania, where everyone was really worried about him, seeing that he had suffered a stroke recently. Uh, not a good idea to have him go out and debate. I understand the the reasons why he did to show that he is fit to serve, but it kind of worked against him more than it worked in his favor. You also had the New York gubernatorial debate. I mean, these debates are, are spicy, George, and they were so much fun to stream live and watch. And it's really given Republicans 
that last bit of oomph that they've needed uh, to get them over the over the hump as far as definitely taking over the House, but possibly taking over the Senate. And, you know, one of the things that you even saw if you watch the New York gubernatorial debate is Kathy Hochul, uh, who is the incumbent. Uh, who who came in after Andrew Cuomo resigned. Uh, everything is just pointed to look at he's he's a big Trump supporter. He's a Trump supporter uh, pointing at former Congressman Lee Zeldin. And he's like, hey, I got the economy that you're not working on. I got gas prices. I got inflation. I got schools like I got all these bullet points here. And all you're saying is I, I like Trump. Uh, so that's where I think a lot of voters are seeing uh the great divide of where where they can sit and point fingers and say, you know, oh, we, we well, we were served a bad a bad plate of food from from Trump, and we have to sit and eat it. Well, how are you going to fix it? And they offer no solutions. And the same also does go for Republicans. They can point their fingers over and over. They really don't so, show much solution. However, they're able to point and say, look what you've messed up. And then as far as like with voting uh, and, and other, other uh, states around the country that are these big time battleground states, they have Biden in the basement just like 2016, but they have Obama out there. They have Kamala Harris out there, which her approval ratings, why? Uh, doc, Dr. Jill Biden's out there. You have all of these Democratic, uh, you know, the, 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 the loved ones that they love. Um, and they have Biden in the basement. They're not having him go out really and campaign that much because the thing is, is just pay no attention to him. He's he's off working. He's in the basement, you know, and, and it's it's just it's like a repeat of 2020. You know, we're yeah, not out there. He's the he's the he's the embarrassing old relative that we will all one day be uh, that <laughs> yeah. uh, is usually kept up in the attic. But when brought down, uh, serves only to embarrass, needing their nose wiped at all times. Uh, oh, yeah. Just uh, finally, uh, if, of course, the Democrats lose the House, then Nancy Pelosi will have to be spending a lot more time with poor Paul Pelosi uh, because she'll no longer be in charge. I don't know if that's good news for either of them, but it is a necessary <laughs> consequence uh, of, uh, of the Democrats' defeat. Who will lead the House if the Democrats lose? And if they, uh, if, if they lose both, who will be basically in charge uh, of uh, the new political power. Well, it won't be Trump. He won't have elected office. Uh, so who, who will it be and what will their attitude to Trump be? You know, in the Senate, obviously, it would go probably back to Mitch, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, who right now is the minority leader. Uh, in the House, I'm, I'm saying it would go to Kevin McCarthy, who is the House minority leader. Uh, he is the one that is looked to upon for a number of different things, um, one being it of how how is Trump going to take the news or how does the uh, leader of the Republican Party feel about certain issues, whether people love Trump or not. Um you see, when uh, everything went down with Trump as far as the FBI raid and whatnot, every single Republican immediately came forward and showed their uh, backing of Trump and saying, this is this. I can't believe this is happening. And then as the days went on, then you saw the ripple of, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, the, the, the fringe ones start to, you know, distance themselves from Trump again. But immediately the fact that even from all the way from Mitch McConnell, all the way to some of the senators um, that even 
you know, were very much against uh, Trump, like Mitt Romney coming out and saying, what's going on? Why is a former president getting raided by the FBI? Just goes to show who the leader of the Republican Party still is. Uh, but I definitely think it's going to be Kevin McCarthy for the House. Uh, as far as who's going to lead, you know, it's very much probably going to be kind of a Mitch McConnell v. Trump uh, that we saw very much when Trump was president. Uh, and I think Kevin McCarthy might be that um you know, the the the, the glue that kind of tries to keep everybody together and also maybe like the 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 cushion between the two, because we all we've all seen that McConnell and Trump were very much against each other on a number of different things. And, you know, Trump, while he likes to remain very stubborn, Kevin McCarthy was kind of able to finagle with him and kind of give him some cushion and say, hey, you know, maybe he was he was able to kind of, you know, budge him, you know, to one side or the other. He had a very good art of doing that with Trump. And I think that's where, you know, uh, Trump will be the head of the party. But Kevin McCarthy, I think, will be the neck in, in showing which way Trump should be looking, if that makes sense. Will Trump be back on Twitter next week, as he claims? You know, he says that he's not going to come back to the platform, but that was when Elon Musk was just talking about taking over Twitter. Do I think he comes back? Hell yeah. I think he's going to come back. I mean, wh- wh- why would he not? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a re- redemption, exactly. redemption why, tour. <laughs> why wouldn't Musk bring him back? Yeah, exactly. Why wouldn't Musk uh, bring him back? Although yeah. I see Musk has got even more followers on Twitter than Donald Trump uh, ever had. But then he's in a position just to add followers. I don't know. Maybe he's algorithmically massaged <laughs> his figures. We'll Farah, talking of massage, give my best to Paul Pelosi if you uh, make a pit stop there again. I Thanks will send your thoughts and prayers. joining us. <laughs> Thanks, George. Please do. <laughs> far and Fronchak, far and balanced. Uh, quick break, and then it's calls all the way to the end. Follow me on uh, Patreon. Why don't you? You'll enjoy it. There's all kinds of uh, new things uh, have been coming through the pipeline, and another big one is about to. I've got my hands on a copyright-free edition from, I think, 1910, if that's uh, an accurate memory of War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, and I'm going to read it episode by episode, chapter by chapter, exclusively on Patreon. It might frighten you, I tell you. Uh, Now, uh, you can uh, do that, of course, on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash George Galloway. And the podcast, as I said earlier, is just phenomenal. It is top of the charts in Indonesia and in the charts in virtually every one of more than a hundred countries and territories. There it is there, moats. Let's go to Los Angeles. Who wouldn't? Where Nick awaits. Go ahead, Nick. Hey, George. Good evening. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, just a comment and a question well, really for you today. And, uh, and, and just a, a follow up to your last guest. Um, I think one of the big takeaways you'll see next week in the midterms in the U.S. is that I think there's going to be a significantly low turnout. Uh, I watch the numbers. I think people are sick and tired of what's been going on, and they'll be sitting on their hands next week. So we'll see how that plays out. But my question for you following on that is, are you aware, have you been paying attention to the, um, the squad, you know, the Ocasio-Cortezes, those that got elected in 2020? The bomb squad. Yeah. yeah they've become I call the bomb them the squad. bomb squad, Nick. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's my comment. And You're, they've become the yeah. bomb squad. Gonna, yeah, and Bernie Sanders is saying exactly. 
Exactly. Uh, it would make a horse. It would make a horse laugh. They are denouncing anti-war protesters as Putin stooges when the anti-war protesters are saying exactly the things that they themselves were saying when they were making their name as the squad. They are phonies, frauds, Ilhan Omar, Ocasio-Cortez. They are phonies, flimflam, frauds. And it's about time people stopped investing emotionally and politically and financially in these kind of frauds. They are sent along to tantalize us, to do the dance of the seven veils in front of us. And when the veils come off, I'm afraid it's not a pretty sight. So thanks, uh, Nick, for giving me the chance to say that Lance is in Canada. Lance has the bold thesis that China and Russia will collapse. We better hear about that. Go ahead, Lance. Well, I mean, I do agree with you on your 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 stance on the Ukraine war and you know where right is on this side. But uh, I mean, I mean, let's face it: Russia and China aren't really willing to do the things that it's going to take to survive. They don't turn on allies. They won't side with radicals to weaken their enemies, uh, at least not frequently. Uh, they're not going to ban abortion. At least Russia probably isn't in its own country. Uh, they don't take on migrants. They don't expand borders. They're not willing to cause global food distress. Uh, instead, they've been sort of trying to get by with hard work and sacrifice for the last century. And I guess I don't really feel like that, that is going to win the day. Uh, their populations are old. Their trade relationships are gradually going to be eroded. And it's going to be too hard to pivot quickly without enough young people in the population. Um, I think the uh, Western elite have adopted a plan to, to ruin these nations. And uh, I, I think in the short term, they're going, they're willing to take a loss and watch Europe fall apart. And uh, they're willing to do all, all sorts of sort of, unsavory things one of the things a couple of the things i do think they've been promised uh in this whole future where there is no china and russia is uh more corporate control of the family farm and more corporate control of the single family home um and i think the other part of the plan is that it's going to take western europe sort of 20 years to get back on its feet and then by that time, uh, the Leviathan will be stolen from Lebanon and the pipe will be, the land will be stolen from Syria, uh, partly because Russia won't be able to protect all of the fronts, i.e. Syria probably get attacked in the Sakhalins. Um, I'm, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm not saying they deserve it. I think, you know, both countries have kind of done things honorably in the, in the last century, but, I mean, I, I do think the, the 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 battle might be won here, but I think the war will be lost. Well, I, I think that's the call of the evening, uh, Lance. Uh, even though I I disagree with its conclusions, it was extremely well argued and thought provoking, and I'm sure the audience will think uh, likewise. My, the most obvious answer to you is that if you think that Xi Jinping and Lavrov and Vladimir Putin have not thought of all of that, then you're 
misunderestimating them, as George W. Bush might put it. Uh, they have a plan to deal with the plan. I'm perfectly sure of that. Uh, the tongue-in-cheek uh, criticisms of them that you make, that they are not prepared to uh, turn on their allies, they're not prepared to behave like international brigands and so on, uh, is uh, tongue-in-cheek. And I commend you for the way that you delivered those lines with a straight face. Uh, but you know, there comes a point at which the world decides that being ruled by piratical brigands is not the only way. It cannot be the best way. That there must be a better way. And I kind of feel that the world has decisively now decided that. I think that's why uh, all kinds of countries, some of them the most unlikely of allies, like Saudi Arabia, are joining the BRICS. It's why more than half of the world's population and well over half of the world's wealth is now in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. It's why nobody is paying attention to US diktat and demands. South Africa was ordered by the United States to seize a super yacht belonging to a Russian plutocrat, a Russian uh, oligarch. They never do explain why Russian oligarchs are worse than British and American oligarchs, but they ordered South Africa. And uh, whatever criticisms I'd make about the current government of South Africa, the president sent them away with a flea in their ear. Uh, Ramaphosa said, South Africa has no obligation to obey sanctions introduced by the EU or the United States of America, and we have no intention of doing so. And he went on to make the point that all of these European and North American countries had been friends of apartheid when only Russia and Cuba were on the side of the African National Congress, which Ramaphosa now leads. Uh, so more and more people, I'm not saying all of them for ethical reasons. I'm not accusing MBS of Saudi Arabia of having a sudden outbreak of ethics, but of self-interest. They realize that the wind has changed, that the tables have turned, that the tectonic plates are shifting, and the first one now will later be last, the last now later first. The slow, now, later, fast, they are realizing that the wheel is still in spin, Lance, and you are of an age that you know the origin of every one of those lines that I have just quoted. Uh, Super Chat Donations, thanks so much again. Liam Barrett uh, gives five euros, a weekly donation. Let's get to moats five days a week, says Liam in Dublin. It's doable, you know. Look how we've taken to two nights a week so smoothly with two sponsors from this coming uh, Wednesday. All we need is two sponsors for another night and another night. And we're bringing their product, their services to a million people every time. Go figure, as Joe Biden would say about Rashid 
Sunak. Craig Chambers gives 10 pounds. William Cole, 100 Swedish crowns, thank you. MB gives five American dollars. Greetings from Russia, says MB. I had to use a VPN because Super Chats are blocked here. Of course they are. And I couldn't possibly accept your $5 MB. But I bless you and ask God to bless you for having tried. Terry Bassett gives 10 British pounds. Thanks, Terry. Conservative Patriot, 9 US dollars 99. Great show as always, George. Thank you. Abdul Karim Rahimi gives five pounds. Thank you. Uh, Victor Mambu, 10 pounds. Uh, VJ Bovan, 20 pounds. Stephen Mulholland, four pounds. Gift Dorb, five pounds. Bless you, Gigi. God help us indeed. Thanks for that. Uh, Morkovka, 10 euros. Martin McWilliams, two pounds. Daniela Modos Cutter, two pounds 49. X-ray Vision, five pounds. With this, we need a revolution. Our politicians have sold us all out to the corporations and the minions in the MSM are gaslighting us. You may say so, I couldn't possibly comment. Barry Lim gives £2.50. Mrs. Lucas is on the line from Birmingham about Iran. Good evening, Mrs. Lucas. What can I do for you? Good evening, George. Thank you very much for letting me speak with you. I want to speak about the um, uprising in Iran. And yes. it seems that uh, uh, many people uh, don't know what is really going on or they think that there are uh, foreign uh, powers behind the uprising. I want to say that mm-hmm. it is not. They are genuine people that are fed up of the situation in Iran and the 43 years of dictatorship. Um, they just, um, they have, they have done it many times before, but the mainstream media kept it quiet. And this is the first time that the world really knows about uh, how the um, situation in Iran is for women, but it's not just about uh, freedom for women, it's freedom for everything and the things that has been going on for 43 years under, you know, behind the doors. And um, I don't know if, if I am allowed to say that, but I... You can want... say anything you like, Mrs. Oh, Lucas, you. anything you like. Thank you. I want to say that I was in Iran 43 years ago when Khomeini came and we didn't know him, George. Nobody knew him. He was known for just a few um, uh, um, religious um, elites in Iran because he was exiled in in, uh, Iraq for I don't know how many years. And he came, now we know that he came with a CIA agent, a woman named Dorian McGray. There has been some pictures with him, um, uh, um, with uh, this CIA agent. She, was the, she came with her to make sure that um, 
Carter's order, well, Khomeini uh, will implement um, Carter's order and other things. And uh, this is very <coughs> important because the recently the um, anonymous people have hacked the minist- Ministry of Intelligence website, the Iranian um, uh, Ministry of Intelligence website, at, and they have found out that they are in direct contact with the U.S. Um, government, and obviously they have been remotely controlled by the U.S. and allies. Well, look, uh, Mrs. Lucas, uh, I gave you plenty of time to develop that somewhat convoluted set of conspiracy theories. Uh, The hour is late. I can't do all of them justice, but it will be news to everyone watching the show this evening that the Islamic Republic of Iran is controlled by the CIA, that they are effectively CIA agents, that they are in direct connection, to use your words. It will be a surprise to many uh, that Ayatollah Khomeini was escorted in by a CIA agent to make sure that he followed Jimmy Carter's orders. That will uh, surprise many. It will surprise many who saw the Iranian revolution on their television uh, that there were only a few religious elites uh, that were supporting Khomeini because it looked like there were millions and tens of millions of Iranians uh, supporting him in that revolution. Uh, It will be a surprise to many uh, that uh, most people in Iran did not know uh, Khomeini when so many tens of millions of them were there to welcome him on his return from his exile. Uh, The Iranian revolution overthrew, of course, an actual CIA agent namely the Shah of Persia, uh, the greatest tyrant in a Middle East uh, filled with tyrants, the biggest torturer in a Middle East full of torture chambers. Uh, The Shah of Persia was overthrown by a mass upsurge of tens of millions of people, and many of the tyrant supporters left Iran and have lived the last 43 years in places like Birmingham or in Arizona or uh, wherever it is that they went to. I don't support the uh, thesis that you advanced, but I'm happy that you got space here uh, this evening to advance it. Neither do I believe that none of the protesters in Iran are genuine, authentic protesters. In any country, you will be able to find thousands of people who would like to protest against the prevailing orthodoxy in their country, against their government, even sometimes against their system. That is obvious. And there is no justification for pretending either that the current protesters in Iran are Tiny in number, as I've heard some do, they are clearly not. 
But as a proportion of the 88 million people in Iran, they are small in number as compared with the mass turnouts of millions of people in support of the regime in Iran. I am not one who believes that all of the problems on the streets of Iran are the result of foreign meddling. But these two things are not mutually exclusive. Uh, there, there can be foreign meddling, and if I tell you, you may not know up in Birmingham, that in London there are three television stations pretending to be Persian television stations, but actually British, Saudi, or other television stations beaming 24-7 anti-government, anti-state propaganda just from London. Imagine from all the other parts of the world where Iran's enemies are situated, maybe even some of them in Birmingham. Alas, I think that's all I've got time for. I hope that you enjoyed the show. I hope that we wake up in the morning to the news that uh, my old friend and comrade Lula is again the president of Brazil, a position from which he was unlawfully and unjustly removed and then fitted up and then incarcerated. I hope that he has defeated the right-wing populist Bolsonaro and I hope that Lula will govern as the Lula I used to know and love. So much so I lent him 200 US dollars in hard currency. Now 45 years ago and I'm hoping that he'll remember that and maybe show me the beaches of Copacabana with my wife and children in repayment of a debt which I was glad to incur. I hope it is the old Lula who comes back to power, not the Lula that George Soros would like him to be, not the Lula that the liberals uh, are hoping that he will be. I hope he will not be a left face for unacceptable people and ideas who will be busy behind the scenes. We'll see. But I'm certain uh, that I want him to win. I'm certain that I want Bolsonaro to lose. I want the BRICS to be led by a big capital B, a Brazil of the working class, a Brazil of the global south, a Brazil of the indigenous masses, a Brazil that will hoist its workers' party flag high and live up to the ideals of a workers' party. We'll see soon enough. I'll be back on Wednesday, God willing, at 9 p.m. UK time. And I hope that you'll be there and that you'll bring other viewers with you. Spread the word. We are establishing ourselves twice a week. Next stop, five times a week. It's been marvelous. Thanks for watching the mother of all talk shows.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.